you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. And as you're turning there, you know, a few, uh, a few weeks ago, I think it is now, a couple weeks, I guess, um, just before God dumped six inches of snow on all of us, and we were trying to navigate life in snow in Tennessee, and, you know, everybody's panicking, the stores are getting swiped like it's a zombie apocalypse or something. Uh, just before that happened, we got a, a, a thin coating of ice over everything. Uh, and that made it really super interesting, um, not only for the gathering we had, our launch today, we had guys out here busting ice and all that stuff, um, but also in our home, uh, at our house, the day that it started, I remember out just kind of hearing the pellets of ice hitting the window, and when that, that started, and the, like the freezing rain came behind that, I remember I went out, we have like at our house a little stoop where you kind of go out, and you're still covered, and you kind of see it all going down, and I went out, and I was like, I, I yelled back at Tiffany, I said, it's icing outside like crazy, I, like, I could see the glaze over the front step and all the sidewalk all the way over to the, to the driveway. And I put my hand down on it, and I was like, what is this? You know, it's like, it was slick. And I'm talking super slick. Well, Tiff, for some reason, didn't trust me. She wanted to just, get, you know, come see it for herself. So she bust out the front door in this, like, unusual pace and hit the front step and just, boom, I'm talking a colossal bust. And, you know, at first, the first thought went through my mind was like, is she dead? You know, because she hit and slid like safe, you know. But then, uh, but then once I, I realized she was okay and I drug her back into the house, uh, you know, I realized I had something special. I, I have on the front step, not only was it my perspective that was glorious of this. Now that I know she wasn't her, it was hilarious. And uh, not only was that awesome, my perspective, but we also have a little thing called a ring doorbell that was mounted from a, in a unique perspective, a different angle on this whole thing that I knew I could just get my phone out and roll the tape back and at the, the perfect time take a screenshot, right, that I could hold over her head for the rest of her life. Now, um, you know, the reason I tell you that story is not only is that amazingly funny for me personally, but, uh, you know, I was able to shoot that out to all of her, her family and friends and she loves me for that. But, uh, you know, the reason I tell you that story is because, you know, I believe this is, what, I, like, what the Lord is doing through the book of Revelation for the church. You know, throughout the book of Revelation, you see three sets of seven judgments, right? We just got done. We wrapped up the seven seal judgments where Jesus steps in the throne room, takes the uh, redemptive plan of God. He begins to open the, the uh, seals, bust the seals and open the scroll. And, uh, and when he does, uh, these judgments begin to unleash on the earth, right? on the wicked, on the redeemed even, to some degree. Uh, and then the final two of those sealed judgments talk about this future point where Jesus is going to step into our reality and roll up everything as we know it, bring this climactic kind of culmination uh, where he will make, bring a new heaven and a new earth. We just, we just you know, kind of move past those seven seals, and some of y'all are like, whew, we're done. Psych, there's, uh, you know, we just move into the trumpets today. And what I believe God is doing with that is, he is he's got this main plain thing that he's wanting the church to see. That in the end, God will judge sin. Okay, that is the main plain thing, right? And what God is doing with the seals is he is giving us a perspective of it from this angle. And then with the trumpets, he gives us a perspective of it from this angle. And then with the bowls that we'll see later in Revelation, he's given us a perspective of this angle. But here's what I believe God is doing with it. And listen, the point of these judgments is that, and it's so important, we keep this in our mind we know, when we come to Revelation, that Revelation was written, again, to real people in a real hard time. 
okay? It was written to people in the first century church, a church that was in the teeth of hard times, in persecution. People were losing their lives, jobs were being lost, their whole entire way of living in comfort as they knew it was being flipped on its head. And so what, what God is doing for the church as he's writing this to them through John, as he gives them these visions, isn't to, leave, like to, to make them wring their hands and, and look at the, for the signs of the times and try to figure out what's going on and when's this all going to hit the fan and just go huddle up in the basement. That's not what this is for. This isn't like a doomsday prepper handbook. That's not what this is. This is a vision of victory. Okay, and so what Jesus is doing for the church today and for us in this room today, if you know Jesus Christ, is to help you understand that in the end, Jesus wins. I will bring that to you every morning that we meet together in this book to help you understand that that is what revelation is. So as we get into these trumpets, as we, these, uh, these, uh, uh, these judgments unfold, the primary way they serve us is to help encourage us, to give us hope in the meantime because of what will happen in the end time. Give us hope today. And so if you're in the room and you need a little bit of that, you're in the right place. See, Revelation was written, again, not so that we would bring, it could bring fear and speculation, but it was to bring hope and consolation for a church. A church that literally, when, when and it's important we get this, when, when the church in the first century came to Jesus, when they said, I want to surrender all that I am to you, Lord, they understood that it would cost them something. That it, was, it would literally cost them something. It wasn't a cheap grace. It wasn't an easy believism that you just tag on to your life. When you aligned yourself with Jesus Christ and his way of life, his yoke. You know, he talks about my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The yoke in the Jewish world was a way of life. Right? And so what Jesus is, when, he, when people would come to Jesus and yoke up with Christ, they knew that it was better than what they were about to walk through. That it was worth it, whatever it would cost them. But it was going to cost them. Right? And so in a, in a day in our lives where it's is increasingly true for following Jesus, right, it's so important that we understand that this is not to beat you down, church. This is to help you understand that Jesus will bring the victory. Right, he will bring the victory. And so this morning, we're going to look at these trumpet judgments. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to kind of go through these pretty quickly. These four judgments. I'm going to talk about four trumpets of the seven. And then we will get to the other three next week. Okay? And, and I'm going to kind of just interpret those through the lens of which I see uh, Revelation. Uh, that we've already established. This idealist view of interpretation, which is, it is heavily symbolic leaning back on Old Testament writings, okay? And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us three points of application to hang our hearts on. Does that sound good? So what I want to do today is to mix this up a little bit and keep you honest and happy. If you'll stand with me, we're going to read uh, God's Word together. Uh, Revelation 8, 6 through 12, okay? This is God's Word. It says, Now seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hell and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the earth, 
on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Let me pray for us. Father, I love you. And Lord, I do pray that you would use your word right now in the hearts of your people. This is your word for your church, for your people, for your glory. So God, I pray that we would see it. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. So this morning, three points I want us to see as we leave here. We'll get to these in a moment. The three points I want you to see is that God's judgment is intensifying. That God's grace is indescribable. And God's call to live sent is for us to do it so intentionally. Intentionally. God's call is to live intentionally. You know, in, uh, in Scripture, trumpets are an important thing. You see it as a theme throughout the Old Testament. This is a, again, revelation. And really, in order to understand it, you have to keep your eyes on the Old Testament. Not CNN, not Fox News, the Old Testament, okay? And so trumpets in the Old Testament were a common thing to see. As you read through the narrative of Scripture, you see trumpets continually. A trumpet was blown at the coronation of a new king. As they would, a new king was coming in, to, to sit in power, a trumpet was blown. It was also uh, blown to gather God's people together. A trumpet was uh, blown at the, as a warning for a coming attack or for God's people to repent. Joel, a prophet in the Old Testament, writes this. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So it is also to warn God's people that, that impending judgment is upon them. Right? That God is moving upon them. Now, most importantly, and I think this is, this is the encouragement piece for the church. Most importantly, when trumpets of Israel would sound, it was this great uh, reminder that the Lord was coming on behalf of the nation to fight for them. Right? So when they would blow this trumpet before a, 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 an army, often in the Old Testament, they're outnumbered. Right? Often they, are, uh, they, they face uh, doom. Right? But as they would blow the trumpet... God would remind the people who was in charge, who was boss, who was bringing the victory, who was actually the Lord, who had the might, right? And so it was this reminder that God was going to fight for them. So trumpets mean victory, right? Trumpets mean victory for God's people. And this is a big deal because, you know, there's a, there's a pastor that I, I really love. And some of y'all know him. He's in Texas. His name's Matt Chandler. He said something recently about the, the book of Revelation. I really think... Uh, is key this morning for us. He says that when we come to Revelation, it cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. Right? When we come to Revelation, it cannot mean for us today, right, what it did not mean for the people in which it was written. Okay? So when we come to Revelation, why would God give them more things to fear? Right? They had enough to be worried about. So when God gives them these visions of seals and trumpets and bowls, it's to help them understand as they hear the trumpet blown, as they see these trumpet judgments poured out, that Jesus Christ is going to fight for them, that he has brought the victory. This was to lift their heads, not beat them down. So it ought to do the same thing for us this morning. Trumpets are so important. And one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that this uh, that this text would have brought the Jewish mind back to 
is found in the book of Joshua. Joshua is one of my favorite narratives in Scripture. If you don't know the story, it's, it's really beautiful. The, the nation of Israel was in bondage to Egyptian slavery for 400 years. And God raises up a man, an imperfect man, praise God, that can happen, uh, an imperfect man named Moses to go uh, and to deliver God's people. So through God's power, through God's hand, and his willing obedience to do the things that God called him to, he led them out. Right? You know the story, parts the Red Sea, walk out on dry ground, and then the nation of Israel becomes complacent, turns their heart back to their idolatrous ways, and God allows them to wander in the wilderness. Something that should have take them, taken them a short time to get where God was taking them, took them 40 years. Right? And God calls them to go to this place he has set aside, he's pre preparing for them. A place that he says was a, a land flowing with milk and honey. This, this, and this whole narrative really points our hearts and should to where we're going. Right? This, this new heaven, this new earth that God is preparing for us, that he's taking us through. And, and in this story, Moses, uh, in his sin, God says, you're not going to get to actually step into this land. I'm going to let you see it. Then he passes the torch to his Padawan, uh, Joshua. Joshua then takes the nation of Israel into this land in the first bit of opposition, the first city. Now, this land wasn't just vacant and fenced, right? This land was occupied by pagan nations. And in this, uh, in this land, the first bit of opposition, the first city they, were, they, they come upon is Jericho. Now, Jericho was surrounded, literally walled. It was a fortress. And God told them to go into the land and eradicate all pagan nations. Don't leave any ounce of idolatry in this land that I'm giving to you. So they didn't have to go around it. They had to go through it. Right? And, and what's important about the story is that God calls them to do something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And isn't that what he typically does? Right? He says, take the Ark of the Covenant and the priests go before you with these trumpets of ram's horns in their, in their hands. And circle the city one time for six days. Right? One time, go home. Next morning, go do it again. Next morning, go do it again. You can just imagine on the wall these like these military, like, uh, people just stationed out, like, throwing rocks at them. Like, you guys are crazy. You're going home, whatever. But God just told them, circle the wall. And on the seventh day, circle it seven times and blow the horn a long blast. And when you do, shout, for the walls will fall. I've given you the city. You know, when we read this story in Revelation, we read this vision in Revelation, it mirrors what happened on that day. You see, as these seven trumpets, they mirror what happened in Revelation. These seven trumpets sound, when the seventh trumpet sounds Revelation, we'll get there next week, the kingdoms of this world, all the divisions, all of the ideologies that pollute our culture, all of the divisions, all of the things in, in, in the world today that are wicked and turned against the heart of God, they will all be rolled up and dissolved. They will literally fall at the feet of that coming king when that seventh trumpet sounds. So this, this passage is all about victory. I just want to make sure you hear that because I know it's like trumpets, bowls, seals, awesome, I'm defeated, let me leave, good morning. Right? That's not what this is about. This is about victory. This is about conquest. This is about our king and, and the one who fights the battle. And so when we come to this passage today, one of the things I want you to see is it's not just Joshua, although it mirrors that heavily. All of these, old all these, uh, these passages in Revelation are, should 
lean us back into the Old Testament. In fact, we can't understand it without the Old Testament. It's the interpretive key, right? It's not Tucker Carlson. It's not Anderson Cooper, okay? It's not like what's going on in the meta narrative of our, of our culture and society. It's what's going on in the Old Testament. So if you want to understand this book, get your head in this one, okay? And so when we go back in the Old Testament, we see these seven trumpets, all of them have a, a, a nod to a, a plague that God brought against the nation of, I mean, the, uh, the, the people of Egypt. When God delivered out the Israelites, he did so by bringing plagues against Egypt. And every one of these trumpets sound have something to do. They, they lean us back into what God was doing then and help us understand what he's doing now. Okay? So let's look at the first. I'm just going to walk through these quickly. The first trumpet. It says, when the first angel blew the first trumpet, hell and fire mixed with blood was thrown on the earth. Hell and fire thrown on the earth. And a third of the earth was destroyed. Is it literal? Maybe, right? I mean, in the, uh, in the Old Testament it was literal, but I think it's probably best understood metaphorically to remind us of what happened with the seventh plague in Egypt. If you remember this, God brought devastating hell to Egypt. And why was that important? Well, when the hell fell, it, it just completely destroyed their crops, completely destroyed a lot of their sustenance, their way of life. And so what God was doing was not just dropping hailstones on the people to punish them, but it was more so an attack against the lowercase g gods they served. And one of the gods that they worshipped was gods of agriculture. It was an agrarian society. And so what, when, when you have these Egyptians bowing down before these gods that are bringing all this produce and all this, uh, th this, um, these crops to their land that they're providing for them, they think that the little g gods are the ones feeding their stomachs. And yet God himself says, no, I will show you who is God. I will show you who is the Lord that should be worshipped. And so in our society today, you might still today look and say, man, who would worship idols? That's, that's, that's like a, a, that's an Eastern thing, right? Like I've been to Bangkok and, Lord, uh, one of the things that I, uh, you know, if you're new to us, uh, we have campuses, not just locally, but we have a couple international campuses, one in Brussels, Belgium, and one in Bangkok, Thailand. And I've had the opportunity, 10 years of student ministry here, to take a bunch of teams to a bunch of places. And one of the places that I remember going to that's literally etched in my heart uh, is when we went to Bangkok. And because in Bangkok, you don't just read about, but you see about. Right, you step into its reality, this idea of idol worship, when you literally see families bringing their little ones to these temples and, and they, they burning incense, they're taking their shoes off, they're going before these wooden statues. And I just like want to pick them up and say, are you crazy? It's wood, it's painted. I saw the dude down there chiseling one, right? Like it's, it's fashioned with hands. It won't give you what you're hoping for. But what I'm reminded of in that moment, I, at first I was just ticked, to be honest with you. It's hard not to just... You know, just kick, the, just kick it over. At first, that's what I was thinking. But then God began to convict me to say, you know, this is, not just a, this is not just a thing in their lives. Matt, this might be present in your own. You see, idol worship, it is very alive and well in the hearts of many. You know, and, and where I might say, why would you bring your child to worship this altar? You know, many families do that today when they drag their kids to the ball field every single week and tell them to bow down before this little G God and they have no place of centrality where Christ is seated on the throne in their lives. 
many families today mirror and model this and for their own kids and say, this is what's important. When you get into the best school, when you get the best job, when you get the most money, that's what's important for you. That's what success is. That's what achievement is. That's where you're most satisfied. That's where you're most fulfilled. That's where you need to be worshiping child. And there's no worship of God in the home. There's no Bible reading. There's no discipleship around the, around the scripture, but discipleship around a screen. That's what's so sad about the world today is that this is not something that happened then. Listen to me. It's going on now. And so what God might be doing in these trumpets is reminding some of the church to say, where might those idols be present in your own life? Because as God brings this judgment, as his trumpet sounds, it's not just a warning for the wicked, but I think it's a warning for the church to understand that he will not share allegiance. He will not crowd his throne room with little gods that compete for your hearts. He is, a, he is the one of supremacy. Does he have that in your life? And the second trumpet says that the, the angel blew the second trumpet and uh, a great mountain, something like a great mountain, again, symbolism, not literal. Burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures of the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed. In Exodus 7, if you read about it, in the first plague that plagued the nation of Egypt was when God turned the Nile to blood. Now, you know the Egyptian people, the Nile was huge to them. It was like their life source for the nation, for, for their prosperity, for, you know, the, the ground was fertile because of the Nile. A lot of their trade and their, and their cultural influence happened because of the Nile. The Nile was everything for them. And they actually worshipped a lowercase g God, which was the spirit of the Nile. And so when God struck the nation of Egypt with this first plague and turned the Nile to blood, what he was saying was, I'm God. Get your faces off the ground worshiping this lowercase thing that you think provides, that you think satisfies, that you think is the one that, that brings sustenance and, and life to you. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. All of these trumpets are not just a warning for wicked. It is an attack on the idea and the concept of idolatry in the hearts of anyone. It is, it is a reminder that God alone desires to be worshipped. It says in this text that something like a mountain was thrown into the sea. Something like a mountain was burning. You know, in the Old Testament, the, a mountain was a, a word used to talk about any pagan nation that opposed God. You know, the prophet Jeremiah, he writes about the destruction of Babylon, which is basically a code word. You know, any, any nation that opposes God is a code word, Babylon. You know, America is Babylon. Europe, Babylon. Any of the nations of Europe, Babylon, right? And Because they oppose God. We see this in not just the cultural current that's swift in our society, but even the legislation that's handed down and approved and passed and promoted in our society. Our country is no longer a Christian nation. It is Babylon. And what we see in Jeremiah 51 is something prophetic, I believe, even for the church today. Look what it says. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain declares the Lord, which destroys the, er the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. Listen, the Lord isn't cursing a mountain peak. He is ticked at a people. 
He's ticked at a people. When the trumpet sounds, God is going to roll down every world power that opposes him. Every, uh, and, and, and think about this. This has always been true in world history. Egypt, Rome, in all of its glory, in all of its cultural influence, in all of its military might, in all of its cultural advancement and what it did for the world. And there was a moment where it felt immune before a holy God. But there is no immunity before the Almighty. we got to remember that. And he says that there's a day coming when this trumpet sounds. And it's sounding today. Every nation that opposes God will be rolled down from the crags, it says. Will be rolled down and burnt up. There is, listen, there is no advancement. There is no enlightenment to, that, will, that will hide us from that day. In the end, there will be one king that every king will bow before. There will be one people in one city. This trumpet reminds us of that reality. Reminds us of that. And the third trumpet says it's, it sounded in verse 10 and 11. It says, And the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and the springs of water, the inlets. And it says the name of the star is Wormwood. Now, this is important. It says that the third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water. Now, when this happens, it says this, is, this star fell from heaven, and the name of that star was Wormwood, and it polluted the uh, the inlet springs and rivers. Now, wormwood is actually an herb so bitter. Look at this. This is, an, this is amazing. So bitter that one ounce of it pollutes or makes worthless and bitter to the taste 500 gallons of water. So, so just a vial of it could, could pollute your pool in your backyard. And, and the point is, is it doesn't pollute it in a way that, that it kills everyone who drinks from it, but it makes it worthless. It makes it useless to the taste and, and, for, and for drink. And so in the Old Testament, when God punished the nation of Israel by actually poisoning their water source, he did it because they had polluted their hearts to him. Right? They had polluted their hearts with, these, with the, the worship of idols. And this is still a reality today. Scripture uses the symbolism of, of our hearts, of the deepest parts of who we are as a well that we draw from. Right? So what comes out of your mouth proceeds from where? The heart. Right? And this is what we see continually, that this symbolism of a heart. And sadly today, many hearts are poisoned. Many wells are poisoned. Many hearts today are bitter and worthless to God because they are polluted with a, with a love of self, with, with a love of money, with a love of pleasure, with a love of comfort. But listen to me, not a love of God. God is not first. Instead of passionately pursuing the creator of all, the one who gives and sustains life, they have turned and polluted their hearts and lives with a fascination, not just a fascination or asphyxiation, but actually a worship of creation itself. Right? And this is, this is true today. I feel this today. There's so many people who literally, they're God. We can argue our way around it, but the thing that has your heart is your God. If the thing that, that takes up the most of your thought space is your work, it's your God. If it's your accumulation of whatever that is, if it's financial bank statements, or you just, you know, always looking at and figuring out how we get more and how we get to this place that you're charting out for your family, that's your God. If it's literally maybe your own kids can become your God, what has your heart, church? What has your heart? This fourth trumpet sounded and it said, 
that the third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened. And a third of the day was kept from shining, likewise a third of the night. When the fourth angel blew this trumpet, this trumpet calls us back to the ninth plague in Egypt. If you remember what that was, is when God struck, he literally smacked the stars and turned it darkness over the nation for three days. Three days, complete darkness. What's interesting is uh, the text lends us to understand that there was actually light given for God's people in Gershom, right? The, the actual Israelites still had light, but the nation of, of Egypt that had turned their hearts from God, right, the ones that he was judging with this plague, they had complete and utter darkness. This feels very similar as well to, if you remember, the sixth seal, which said that it, when, when that seal's broken, there was this darkness, right? The, the sun was blocked out by these, you know, the, we talked about like it almost seems like it's volcanic of what's going on. And the, the sun becomes black as sackcloth and the moon at night becomes red as blood. And it's, you know, but that's a total thing. That's coming. That was the sixth and seventh seal. This is limited. And, and, and so what I believe is happening here, it wasn't the whole light it's a piece of the light so I believe that this is a warning this isn't the judgment this is a warning God is is bringing before mankind all hearts specifically the unbelieving heart right to turn their hearts back to God you see in Egypt the like one of the premier gods they worship was the sun god Ra right they worshiped him they made sacrificed to him, their lives were, were, were spent, poured out at an altar of raw. There were sacrifices made there. And yet God in this passage says that the way he will judge when that trumpet is sounding, and I believe it is happening today throughout church history, God is calling his people to repentance. He's calling many hearts that are far from him to repentance as a means of grace. And what he's doing is saying, you are worshiping something. That my son Jesus came to be. You see, when he, when he literally said, I'm going to block out some of your light, it's actually pointing their hearts to the one who it says is the light of the world. Jesus Christ who has come to give light to all who would turn to him in faith, give purpose and meaning and, 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 a, and a, a passion to, to live for. You see, this trumpet judgment is not best understood as a literal partial darkening of, of the light in the celestial bodies, but a judgment against the idolatry of man. And this is what they all are, right? Is that we would do some internalization, some processing to say, where are these idols present in my own life? Where are they at? And I, help me to turn my heart back to God. And this is primarily for unbelievers, these judgments, these trumpets, where the first sets of sealed judgments were for the, uh, the, 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 uh, the believers of God. Because remember in heaven... The martyrs said, God, how long will you, will you persist? How long will you allow this to happen to your people? And he says, angels, hold off until the full number of the sealed are, uh, full number of the redeemed are sealed. And then you can judge. And this is later, th these are the, the, the um, judgments coming against the unbelieving, the wicked, those who have turned their hearts to idolatry. And so all of these trumpets are calling, not just unbelieving, but even the redeemed in the room to do some soul search and see where are these idols and how can I rid them? Where are these idols, how, how can I rid them? So that's my interpretation of the four trumpets. Now, here are the just three quick points of application for us to hang our hearts on. The first one is this. These judgments are intensifying. 
they're intensifying. In the first set, the seals, it was a, uh, uh, was it, 25%. A quarter of the earth was affected by these judgments against sin. These trumpets, we see a third, right? A third of the earth is affected. A third of the earth. And so we see, man, this progression that God is moving all things to this climactic moment where he will bring judgment against humanity and sin. He will roll it all up indefinitely. That day is coming. We see this progression, this movement towards that moment. But here's the thing. We we see this alive and well in our society. No one would argue this. In the natural world, let me give you a couple stats. 819 natural disasters recorded in 2019 alone. 819. That is a 30% increase from the previous 30 years. I was reading something this morning even in 2020 alone. That was on, it was on track to have bring more devastation and more natural disasters. But what has kind of overarched that and really added to the argument is this, this thing, global pandemic we've just walked through. Right? Here's the point. Things are not progressing towards this better utopia. That's not what's going on. Everything is devolving. You see this in this text. God is judging the stars. He's judging the seas. He's judging their inlets. He's judging the land. All of this is showing that God is, he is, he is decreating what he created to bring it to this place where he will bring a new creation. Right? Things are getting more and more intense, not just in the natural world, but also in the social world, in the social sphere. Right, we see this, uh, you know, naturally with the Nashville tornado this, you know, a, a year ago this week. But there's even a, a, a more devastating tornado, I think, in our society today. You see, in our society, not only is this rising tidal wave of secularization sweeping across our country, redefining everything that God said, this is how I've intended it to be, and it is good. Not only is there a sweeping secularization, but there's also this bullying point of racial tension in our society today that is at, literally at this tipping place. And what we saw last week is literally this vision of this one day where we will all be around the throne of God in this, co- this uh, kaleidoscopic vision of nations and tongues and culture and color that what we see on that day should kill any racial uh, reality in our own heart, any bigotry that's there, any prejudice that's there. It should kill it at the root of all those who profess Jesus Christ because we know that all this is heading to that day where these will be brothers and sisters. They will not be enemies. They will not be different. They will all worship the same true and living God on that day, right? So there's not going to be this day where you step out of the church, and if you're thinking and hoping for it, you're going to be mistaken because where sin is present, racism will thrive, right? But in the church, oh, listen, in the church, if you love Jesus Christ, there should be no moment of of racial uh, divide in your heart, and if it is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, ask God to root it out of you. Ask him to rooted out of you. So that day is what should motivate the church. It should be the primary motivator to put your hands to the work of that in your own lives. Because what we believe will happen on that day. But society has developed its own system of dealing and making sense of culture. You see, today, I want to speak to this because, listen, I don't know if you, you know, read or watched what's going on in society today, but there is this ideology that is really a new theology for them, it's new. Uh, it's not a theology at all. That's the study of God. This is Godless. Okay, it's called uh, critical race theory or critical theory 
and, and intersectionality. If you, if you don't know about it, you'll see more about it. And here's the premise. I'm not going to, this is not the place for a white paper on this. But what I will tell you is the premise, because we have, as God's people, don't need to run from culture. We need to speak into it. Right? We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, truth. And the life. And so if we are people that, that carry that truth in us, we need to speak truth. Right? Show, show compassion. Speak truth and show compassion to a world that's really being gripped and swept by this. So critical race theory says this. Basically, there are two boxes that you belong to from birth. You're either in the oppressed or the oppressor. And the, the primary motivator that puts you in one of these two boxes is your skin color. Right? Because of your skin color, you are either an oppressor, part of the, the powerful that the system really propagates and, 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 and really uh, you benefit from the system of this world because you are white or you are black or you are Asian or you are whatever. Right? It's not just a black-white issue. This, this goes down the line no matter what skin color you are. You're either an oppressor or you are the oppressed. And so the way forward, according to critical race theory, is that you change the system. Right? You upend the system. You, you, uh, you, uh, you bring a reimagination to the system. But what Christianity and the reason this is, this is against the heart of God is because the hope of the world is not in a new system. It's in a savior. Right? And it's not in, in some new radical reimagination of this system. But it's in a repentance of sin. That's the problem. The reason that there's any divide in our world, it's because of sin. Sin divides and Jesus unites, right? And so we as God's people have got to denounce wholesale this ideology that says you are, you are either powerful or you are oppressed and it is because of your skin tone. No, 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 no. Whether you are black, white, whatever color you find yourself in the array of our world scale, you are either sin or in Christ, Right, and the only way forward is to, man, repent of that sin and look forward to the day where Jesus will wipe every tear, that he will make all things new, he will rid all division. You see, our society says you, you get with culture or you get canceled. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ, praise God, he never canceled me. Right, let me just be honest with you, I'd be the first in line to be canceled. Y'all just know that. Your pastor would not be here today if, if Jesus operated on that scale. But Jesus doesn't cancel. Jesus doesn't cancel, he redeems, he reconciles, and he recreates. He gives us a new heart, a new passion, new motivation. And so listen, I say all that to say things are intensifying. And we've got to be a people who speak into culture and we influence culture from a biblical worldview. But here's my fear, I'm just be really honest with you. Many people can't speak from a biblical worldview because we don't know our Bibles. We don't know our Bibles, and so that has got to be a thrust of your life. You've got to spend time in the Word of God. Let me tell you something. There's a beautiful quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said that the Bible is not the light of the world. Now, before you call him a heretic, look at what he said. It is the light of the church. The Bible is not the light of the world. It's the light of the church. But the, Bible doesn't, but the world doesn't read the Bible. The world reads Christians. The world reads Christians. Your society your neighborhood, your own kids read you. What are they reading? What are they reading? So listen, things are intensifying. And we've got to be ready. Are you ready? So God's grace is intensifying. I mean, God's judgments are intensifying, but his grace is indescribable. You see, because through Scripture, when trumpets are blown to warn people of a coming attack or judgment, there is a grace in this. 
in these trumpet judgments, God gives a warning to God's people, not just total devastation. He could just wipe all of humanity and reset this whole thing if he wanted to. Yet he is gently calling his people towards greater repentance and greater holiness in their lives. And he's calling those who have bent their hearts towards idols to come to him in faith. This is a great grace of God that no one is deserving of. So this world's not getting better. It's progressing to this devolution where he is going to step out of heaven and bring a new, a new heaven and a new earth. And what I love about this grace is, listen, these trumpets are doing what they've always done. They are gathering a people to God. They are bringing warning to people. And they are announcing victory for God's people to have this great hope in as we step out of this world, I mean, out of this room and into the world. That we can leave here with our heads up. Whatever you're walking in. Whatever it is. You lost a loved one, you've lost a job, you've got a bad medical report, you've lost a kid, there's family divide, financial strain, marital strife, whatever it is, listen to me, if you know Jesus, you win. There's victory for you. Walk in it. Walk in it. So his grace is indescribable. Praise God. But finally... God's call for our lives as God's people is to live sent intentionally. To intentionally. Some of you have been around here, you're like, what does live sent mean? It's everywhere. I see it tagged on anything like graffiti around here. Like, what does living sent mean? Listen, living sent means that you step out of this church and you begin to identify, and this is our heart, is that mission is not just when I go get my passport stamped and I step into a foreign context and culture. Living scent means I see that every arena, every concentric circle of my life is a mission field. My home is my primary mission field. My wife is my primary mission field. My daughter is my secondary mission field. My workplace is my next mission field. And then the world beyond that, my neighborhood, the people I, co- I coexist with, I co- I, uh, you know, if I go to the ball field or if I go to the grocery store, there are people around you. And listen, here's the thing. There are people in those, probably the closest circles to you that need to know about Christ. Right? I think we think like mission, yeah, let's get on a jet and go somewhere. How about you go home today and tell your daughter about Christ? How about you tell your neighbor who you've lived next to and you know them and you've drank beer with them and you've hung, am I supposed to say that? And you've hung out with them. Listen. But we've never told them that Jesus Christ is the only way that they will stand before the Father on that day. And if I believe this, there's... There's only two realities. Either this is wholly true or it's wholly a lie. Either Jesus Christ is fully God or he's a lunatic. That's what C.S. Lewis said, wasn't it? Listen, what do you believe today? If I believe that that day is coming and this great warning is being sounded through church history and it is, those trumpets are being sounded today and there is a trumpet that will be blown on, on, on this coming day where God's people, it won't be woe for us. It will be great wonder as we look at Jesus Christ face to face. If I want to know that my neighbor will be there with me. I want to know that, that my, my, my family will be there with me. Have you told them? Have you told them? Listen, there's great urgency in this. There's intention. It changes the way that I view my life. It changes the way I view my participation in church. I'm not just going to come and do this half in, half out stuff. You don't see that in the first century church. Why? And that's why, why do they have such influence? Because they literally believe. That all of their life was to be leveraged for Jesus Christ because he was worth it. You know why I think that was? Because I actually think they believed he was a thing. 
not, not just something to tag to their life, but I think he, they actually believed what they said they read. Right? They believed that he was coming to judge the living. He, he, they actually believed that he had conquered hell and the grave. They actually believed he was going to make a place and he would bring a new heaven and a new earth. They actually believed it, so it changed how they lived today. So let me ask you this. What step do you need to take? If you believe that to be true, does your calendar agree with that? Does your conversations, does your thought life, does your search history, does your finances, do those things agree with that? Man, let's, let's anchor our hearts in what we see here and, and man, trust that he's worth it and take a step in that direction. Okay? Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church, so thankful for your word, Father. Your word is good. And God, I, I trust that even in every insufficiency of myself and my flaws and where I flubbed it this morning, God, I pray that your spirit intercedes and says better words. God, I pray that in, into the hearts of, of, of people in this room, God, you would remind them of what is true, of what is better. God, would you give us a, just a great grip on this church, protect us, but motivate us. To do hard things. God, I pray that the church in Arrington would be a church that just comes and we're comfortable. We just come and we sit and we soak. We go back into our homes. We go back into our great jobs. We go back and do all the things that we do. But Lord, when we come, we have a supernatural encounter with your spirit that demands something of us today. So Lord, if there's someone in here who doesn't know you, would they not presume on your grace for tomorrow? But they would do work with you today. Today could be the day of salvation for them. Lord, maybe there's someone that's been playing the half-in, half-out game. That's been their whole existence with church and their engagement with church. God, maybe today you help them to see a great reason to plant roots, to get connected, to exist in community alongside other brothers and sisters who want to do it imperfectly but progressively towards Christ for the long haul. God, I pray that maybe there's someone here that feels insufficient or, in, you know, unable to disciple their kids and to, to, to teach the things of God to their family, Father. But would you just help them take a step and grab a Bible they can read? And to begin setting aside a time where they can get into your word and understand your heart. And then just very honestly bring that to their family. Just share. They don't have to know words. You gave them the words. They read that over their family. They pray together before meals, thanking the one who is the provider, thanking the one who is the sustainer, thanking the one who is truth and life and the way. Lord, these trumpets remind us that the idols in our lives need to be removed. So where are they today? Would you help us take a step? It's your name we pray. Amen.